Welcome to Know My Faith and my guest once again, a privilege to be talking with Motel Belliston. Shalom to you. Shalom Aleichem. Good to be with you, Rob, and with all of your viewers down there in Kiwiland in New Zealand, a place that I truly love. I have visited New Zealand three times. Uh, I'm sorry that none of the accent has rubbed off. I still have that New York Jewish accent, but uh, I have many friends down in uh, New Zealand, uh, one or two of them in high places. And so I'm glad to get acquainted again. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to seeing you back here again when all our borders open up and everything's back to normal. Actually, I'm looking forward yes. to seeing you at Camp Shoshana. I'd rather get to Shoshana first than you you come to New Zealand. Well, Camp Shoshana, it would be welcoming to you. It's our it's our summer Bible camp uh, in uh, upstate New York. Of course, uh, summer means uh, July and August, which for yeah. you is the middle of the winter. And so you are very welcome. So we want to talk about two things today. Uh, one is uh, dual covenant, and we want to major on that. But something that I've been dealing with online with a couple of groups, and you know, as you and I know, the, the terms messianic and everything have been stolen by some very, very fringe elements. And one of the things that comes up is, is, it, is, is God talking about a new covenant or is it a renewed covenant? This is a question that we are hearing more and more and I think that what happens is that people look through kind of blinders at certain verses in the Hebrew Scripture where it talks about the beauty of the law, the beauty of the Torah, I love thy law. You can go through Psalm 119, yeah. where the psalmist lifts up the beauty of God's law, and that is understandable because what was the covenant arrangement under which the psalmist was living? It was in that dispensation, in that period of time, it was Mosaic law. And so that was to be the, the, the rule of life. It was to be the rule of life. As you look to Hashem, as you look to God, the rule of life was Mosaic law. And yet in the midst of Mosaic law, you have this Jeremiah 31 passage which says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And here's the key phrase. Yep. It will not, I'm quoting from memory, it will not be like the covenant I made with them in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. In other words, it's saying this new covenant will not be like that covenant. It'll be a different covenant. We, different we had... Covenant. Um, if I use an example, I think we, we had uh, a few years ago, very sadly, uh, a shooting here in a mosque. Several, you know, a lot of people were killed. And New Zealand renewed the gun laws. Right? They didn't throw out the old gun laws and create a new gun law. They renewed the gun laws. Ironically, the, the number of words in the new gun law is actually longer than the whole of Torah. Um, but this is not what God is saying, is it? He's not saying, I'm going to take the Mosaic Covenant and I'm going to renew it. Uh, I'm going to change it and adapt it. He's saying, I'm going to make a new one. Literally, that's what it is saying. It actually goes to the extra step of contrasting this new covenant to come, and it is literally a new covenant. It doesn't doesn't fudge that in any way and says it's going to be different. It will not be like the one I made with them at yeah. Mount Sinai. I mean, it actually goes and says that. How much more do you need? And 
it goes then further to make another distinction between the two, because Mosaic law was written on tablets of stone, whereas this new covenant will be written on yielded hearts of flesh. Yeah, yeah. And, it's different and in every way. I've been thinking about that recently because I've been teaching on the tabernacle and, uh, you know, God says, yes, I'll come and I'll dwell with the people of Israel, but I'm a holy God and you're a sinful people. So for me to dwell with you, you're going to have to like hide me away. You need to put me in the holy of holies. You need to cover it with these three layers and, you know, and all these things. But for us uh, as believers, we have the holy God dwelling within us. We have been taken in to the family of God as his daughters and sons. We have been intentionally adopted, no matter who you are, no matter if your skin is black or brown or white, or whether your name is Rabinowitz or O'Malley. Uh, every single one of us who has come to born again, saving faith in Messiah Yeshua has been adopted intentionally into the family of God. And so that is the basis of our relationship with God not an ethnic identity, um, not um, an Old Testament covenant that was for a finite, limited time period, for a certain people for a limited time period, but rather that, that Jeremiah 31 passage is crystal clear, it's going to be a new covenant. Yeah, yeah. And interesting when you say, when you say with, the, with the Jewish, Jewish is difficult to, um, uh, to, to pin down. Jewish is not ethnic. Jewish is not well, religious. That's, that's, now you're Jewish is, a, you know, a real it's, can of unkosher worms. I know. <laughs> because there are some of us who look at the scripture. For instance, we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and in that whole passage of like from verse 15 to the verse 19, and it talks about the, the extent of the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. In other words, Jewish is not someone who is a descendant of Abraham by faith. I have a whole article online that perhaps we can link to later that explains that Jewish identity is not for us to decide, but it's rather how the scriptures delineate it. And First Chronicles is the last of a series of verses that, that says, first of all, it, Abram had a number of children, the most famous of whom were Isaac and Ishmael. Um, Isaac had a number of children, the most famous of whom were Jacob and Esau. The scriptures say, Jacob have I loved. And so Jacob then has 12 sons. First Chronicles 16 tells us the definition of a Jew, the covenant line, the promise, who is a Jew, goes from Abraham to Isaac through Jacob, then to Jacob's 12 yeah. sons. And so I would maintain that a person is Jewish if they are ethnically descended from one of those 12 sons and blessings on everyone else who is not, they are equally loved of God. If you look at my online videos, even going back 10 years, you'll see that this is kind of my one-string violin. Yep. I want to be a voice crying out to the Messianic movement that for too long, there are a number of Gentiles involved in the Messianic movement who have been made to feel like second-class citizens because they're not ethnically Jewish. And brother, that is wrong. God values every single person equally. All are blood-bought children yes. of the Messiah. So yeah. this is not a ranking issue of one ethnic group above another. This is an issue of 
separate function. The Jewish people have been appointed. Uh, they've been chosen. It's like Tevye said, well, why don't you choose someone else? Because the route that you've chosen for us is difficult. Yes. We've been chosen to give to the world the scriptures, chosen to give the world the Savior. That puts a target on our back. Satan doesn't like the scriptures. He doesn't like the Savior. And so as a result, Jewish people have been persecuted. It's very easy for people to say, oh, I think I'm Jewish, or I feel that I'm Jewish. Um, That wasn't so easy to say in the midst of the Holocaust. No one wanted to be Jewish back then. then. No, not at all. And so I kind of bristle a little bit, as you might tell from my reaction, about those who simply wake up one morning and decide that they're Jewish because they saw some teaching online. Uh, The Bible gets to say who's Jewish. And if you I think where I think where I was going with this is is mm-hmm. an Ethiopian descendant right, of right. Abraham is every much Jewish as a Chinese descendant of Abraham. Oh absolutely if someone is genuinely an ethnic descendant. And and me me as a Gentile, I can convert to Judaism. I can become a proselyte. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Jew doesn't need to believe in God. A Jew can be <laughs> Secular. So, so, and what, and I think what God, to me, what God has done in with with the new covenant and with the Gentiles, He's going. It, it always was this way, in some ways. Here's an interesting example that that proves that. Um, in the book of Ruth, Ruth makes this dramatic conversion statement. Yes. Yeah. You know, to to Naomi, if she says, "Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will be dying. Where you buried, I will be buried." Um, your God shall be my God. She completely tosses out her pagan idols, casts her lot in a thousand percent with the people of Israel. And yet, as you go through the rest of the book, she is all, always called Ruth the Moabitess. Mm. She's never called Ruth the Jew or Ruth the Israelite. Interesting. That is always her. She is always a proselyte. Uh, and yet, all in all, God used her in the lineage of Messiah Jesus. And mentions Which it. brings up the other point is that lineage goes through the male line. Yeah. Yeah. We we could get way we could get way distracted with that. So the, the new covenant and this is where this is where the whole um uh, supersessionism and replacement theology came in is is somebody somewhere along the line forgot that God says I will make the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah where Paul very, very correctly shows that we are uh, grafted in, we Gentiles are grafted in with you into yes. this house. And um, and so what's come up now is this idea somehow that the new covenant is for the church, the Gentiles, the Christians, and the old covenant is for the Jews. Well, very frankly, be aware that the idea of exactly whom the new covenant is made with and whom the new covenant is for is actually still a matter of dispute, even within our own circles. I mean, our circles, Bible believers, and some people would say that the uh, Israel has a, a its own new covenant delineated in Jeremiah thirty-one, whereas the church has a separate new covenant. And that's a view that's kind of fading from, from favor. Uh, then there are others who say that the church has no part in the new covenant. I tend to take a middle-of-the-road view, and this is the same view as Dr. Arnold Furchtenbaum takes, in that as the New Testament passages that, says, that say uh, that 
you Gentiles are fellow heirs, you're partakers mm-hmm. of those new things. It's as though, let's, let's imagine that this new covenant is a glass, and the glass has printed on the side of it, um, House of Israel. It's yes. the nation of Israel, Israel and Judah. It's one nation. And you're holding the glass here. And up here, you've got a pitcher of water, and you're pouring the water into the glass. And you're pouring and pouring, but eventually the, the water overflows the, the glass because it's abundant water. It's free, it's clear, and the water overflows to the nations. The Gentiles are partakers of the abundance of the blessings that God gave to Israel. So they are not taker-overs. They haven't taken over, yeah. but they are fellow partakers of the new covenant. That's why Jesus said th- at the Last Supper, this is the, la- this is the new covenant in my blood. And so for believers today— I believe that we are partakers, all of us, Jew and Gentile equally, we are partakers of the new covenant, which is a covenant that God makes with Israel. But, you know, the, all believers are able to sit at the table, mm. but we don't lose sight that it's a covenant made with ethnic Israel, which Romans 11 says, there is coming a day when they all will be saved, Romans 11, 25, 26. Yeah, that's, that's one of the problems that's coming up with this whole dual covenant business is, yes, is yes. people are thinking that, that because the Bible says that Israel will all be saved in one day, then we don't need to go and tell them about Yeshua. We don't need to go and tell them about the Messiah because God's ordained the day. And I've, and I, and I've got to say, model, that, that even as when we were in Israel, gosh, it's coming up five years ago now, I'll start crying, um, and 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 just talking about this with some of my my Jewish believer friends in Israel, and I'm thinking, how hard is it to be in the land of Israel, surrounded by Jewish people, knowing that this the the veil is on them until this day, uh, desiring to see the whole nation come to know the Lord, but knowing that this veil is there. We can't escape from an unpleasant uh, fact that the scriptures lay out that during our time now and the time of the return of the Messiah, there is going to be what is called in, in the Jewish Bible, the time of Jacob's trouble, yes, uh, the time of tribulation, a terrible period of, um, if you figure it the way most people do, of three and a half years of one sort of tribulation, three and a half years of another. And it will be a time when Israel will be pressed. Many people will perish and those people, are, if they are not saved, are not going to be part of the remnant. You see, a remnant, by the, its very definition, is a portion of the whole. Yeah. And so when that passage says, and thus all Israel will be saved, it's all Israel that exists at a future generation, because the Scripture says of that generation, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. They are the ones who will recognize Messiah, mm. and in a moment, in a day, they will come to faith. We don't know how many will perish in the tribulation. People speculate it. I'm not going to speculate no. it. But that's the imperative of getting out the message now that God's kept his promise and has sent the Messiah. 
And, and I mean, the key is that that even that remnant is going to be saved in exactly the same way you and I were saved. Precisely, yes. They are going to call out to Yeshua, the Messiah, and say, I'm a sinner, I need saving. And, and so even these people that are saying, well, there's, the, you know, there's one thing for the Jews and there's one thing for the Gentiles, but it's still the same thing. Right. You, no one gets into the family of God apart from individual personal faith in the person and work of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. It's the same methodology for all. No one gets in because of an ethnic identity. That's why we see in the New Testament uh, the Pharisees who were bragging about their, what we say in Yiddish, they were bragging about their yichas. Yichas is like my pedigree. You know, I, yeah. I, let me tell you about my, my forefathers. They, I've got this king, I've got this banker. So they've got yichas, they thought. But, but the response to the Pharisees was that God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. And so, no, Yichus, having a pedigree doesn't get you into the kingdom. Being Jewish ethnically does not automatically mean you get saved. Just look at all of the educated people in the first century who saw the Messiah face to face and yeah. yet rejected him. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, interestingly, though, and, and I love this fact in the book of Acts that so many, I mean, when James is talking to Paul at one point and he says, he says, look how many of the priests have come to know the Messiah. And, you know, those priests had to come out of the Pharisees and out of the Sadducees and I'm not sure about out of the Essenes, but it's it's encouraging to know that, that these staunch anti-Messianic priests during Jesus's lifetime, afterwards actually discovered their Messiah. I think that the evidence was mounting. Uh, the fact that so many of the apostles were willing to endure such lives of hardship. No one is going to be tortured to death for a lie. Yeah. And yet we have pretty credible um, reports that a significant number of these early apostles and some of the other early believers uh, went very willingly to their death rather than to deny what with their own eyes they had seen. That had to make an impression upon the remaining uh, Pharisees and priests and other Jewish religious leaders, because these were their own people. The mm. people who were going to martyrdom were Jews, yeah. were Jews yeah. who believed that Yeshua, Shehu HaMashiach, that he was the Messiah. I, I read, and I can't remember who it was that that wrote it, but someone said, uh, was it Eusebius that said that uh, in the beginning of the second century, nearly two-thirds of all Jews believed in Jesus? That that seems to be what he was saying. Um, there are also um, other writers later on writing in the third and fourth century who quote works that have long been lost that seem to indicate that by the end of the first century, as many as one-third. And here's the, one of the oh, reasons for that. Think about all of the Jewish people who died during the siege of Jerusalem. According to the records, you have a little over one million Jewish people who were killed in the three and a half years of siege, yeah. and then another 100,000 taken off into slavery. So that by itself decimated Jewish population. The Jewish people who did not die were the, the believers in Messiah who heeded the very words of Jesus 
when he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its time is near, flee to the mountains. Yes. And uh, the, again, it's, this is a, a matter of some scholarly debate, I'm well aware, but uh, there does seem to be an indication that a number of the Jewish believers fled across the Jordan River into a different Roman district, which was outside of the, the district of Pontius Pilate. And they basically said, listen, we're, we're here in the cities of refuge. We take no stand in this. We're not opposed. And we don't take up arms against Rome. And they lived. And yeah. they flourished. And they built congregations. Yeah, it's it's a whole lot of history that's been lost. Uh, you know, I often ask, where are the where are the Jewish writers from the second century? And you know, very quickly by the year um, one fifty, you you see them drop, starting to drop out of sight. We yeah. do have, and I have listed in in my records and other resource material lists of some of the the bishops of Jerusalem who were all Jewish believers up until around the year 150 or so. Um, I'm no scholar. Please believe me, I'm no scholar at all, but I, I know how to find scholarly works. Yeah. And I have friends who have made these lists, uh, individuals who have researched. And to do real research, scholarly research, you've got to research in the original languages, uh, sometimes traveling around the world to different libraries. So those were lists of bishops who were all Jewish, but a precipitous event in 135, yes. when you have the second failed revolt against Rome, that pretty much was the final break between what would eventually become Christianity and mainstream Judaism. With that, you start to see a rapid decline in the influence of Jewish believers. And as the influence of Jewish believers declined, the incidence of pagan thought in the church climbed. And that's not an accident. I've um, and I'm doing a little not scholarly research, but a little little Rob Holding research into it, uh, <laughs> and and I'm I'm pinning the Edict of Claudius uh, on the beginning of that because Claudius kicked all. We know that the, the the Gentile Church flourished in Rome and and eventually centered itself in Rome, um, yeah. but the Edict of Claudius in was it uh, 58 AD that 58 that, that early. Uh, was it fifty eight or sixty? It was, but but he kicked all the. I think it was fifty eight. Kicked all the Jews out of out of Rome, which yeah, kicked yeah. all the Jewish believers, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, out of Rome, and simply left the Gentiles. And I'm it going, was, is this the start? I can tell you, when I was in Rome two years ago, I took a a very exhaustive uh, two hour tour with a professional guide, who had related to us that there may have been two classes of Jews in Rome. Because in 70 AD, 71, 72 AD, they have very distinct records that the Jewish community in Rome paid to have a number of Jewish slaves redeemed. These were slaves who were, who were working in the mines in Corsica mm -hmm. and uh, other places similar, difficult places to work. And the Jewish community of Rome, which was, in essence, a gentry sort of landed community. And so it might have been a partial mm. expulsion or some of them might have come back. But certainly what you're what you're seeing is is overall the, the case. There was a diminishing um, influence of Jewish believers 
yeah. in the early believing community. And that's what set us off on the wrong track. Um, the, the well, there's many things that set, off, set us on the wrong track. The, 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 um, the problem we have at the moment with with is that people that are thinking that there's there's two systems, one for Gentiles and one for Jews, uh, they're a bit like the the hyper Calvinists that Spurgeon railed against, who said, "Well, we don't need to tell anyone about Jesus because you know <laughs> they're preordained for for heaven or they're preordained for hell." So. No matter whether we tell them or not, makes no difference. And so people are now going, well, if the if the Jews are under this other system, we don't need to evangelize them. Excuse the term. We don't need to witness to them because they're going to come to know Jesus anyway. Well, then Jesus must have been wasting his time when he evangelized among the Jewish. People. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so go complain to Yeshua. Uh, Jesus himself said, "I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel." It was 98% of his hours were spent presenting the opportunity to bring in the messianic kingdom. Even after the leadership rejected that, he continued to preach, to see Jewish people come to faith, and then to prepare the apostles for the task that they would have. And so very clearly in the New Testament epistles, we see evangelism going on. Paul did the same thing. Yeah. Paul slept all over the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, slept is a, is a Yiddish word. He dragged himself all over the Mediterranean specifically to bring in front of Jewish congregations the message that Messiah has come. If Jewish people are automatically going to be saved, then Paul was out of his mind for doing yeah. this. What's the point? No, this is, this is a clear misunderstanding of what the phrase all Israel will be saved. They misunderstand what it means. Yeah. It, it is not to say that that you don't have a responsibility to witness to a Jewish person, to the Jesus, the Yeshua that lives within you. Uh, just on that, we know, you know, are, are Israel still waiting for the Messiah? Because it seems to be a very, very secular nation, a very, you, you seem to be a secular people. Well, he, there there's a divide here within the Jewish people between those who are religious and those who are non-religious. Um, here in America, you have probably um, three quarters of the Jewish people who are not religious. So if you would ask a typical American Jew who is not Orthodox Jewish, are you still waiting for the Messiah? The answer would essentially be along the lines of, well, there probably won't be an individual Messiah. Instead, there will be a messianic age of peace and tranquility. And really, it's up to us to bring in that messianic age. Well, that's almost kingdom now, isn't it? The history of, of Jewish Nobel Prize winners in medicine, in uh, science, in discoveries, Jewish people constituting less than a tenth of 1% of the human race have been at the forefront of... Yeah discoveries that have benefited the race, the, the entire planet. So in their thinking, they're helping to bring in a messianic age of peace by advances in science. It's only the orthodox who would say, yes, we are still waiting for the Messiah to come. Just yes, well, today, today, excuse me, yesterday, I conducted a funeral at a, a traditional Jewish funeral home 
someplace here in the Northeast, I'm not going to identify it, don't want to get them into trouble, but um, it was a funeral for a Jewish lady who was a believer, and but we were holding it in a traditional, uh, for some, Orthodox Jewish funeral home, and I mentioned in my message the 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 twelfth principle of Maimonides, the twelfth and thirteenth principle of Maimonides, talk about the Messiah and about eternal life. Maimonides, the Rambam, said, yes. "I believe with perfect faith." He said in Hebrew, "I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he tarries, every day I will wait for his arrival." The Orthodox are truly anticipating mm. the arrival of a personal Messiah. Yeah, is it that uh, is it that the the rest of uh, Jewish the Jewish people the the rest of Israel have looked at the scriptures and said actually this whole thing about the Messiah is allegorical. Or have they looked at it and said, you know, that's a good idea. Let's do our best to bring about something like this. Um, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but I think it's a combination. It's simply that um, it's that same sort of experience you find in First Peter where people say, listen, we've been waiting so long, maybe it's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that with the Jewish people, they have seen that if they are very smart, and they are, um, and if they educate people and if they educate themselves, they can bring about betterment in isolated patches. And that certainly has happened. Uh, longevity has increased. Diseases, diseases have, for the most part, been conquered. And a lot of this was done through uh, the concerted efforts of Jewish scientists. Oh, we're, we're, making, so, we're making water out of fresh air now, for goodness sake. They, they can do that. Even though it costs more to make the water, it's like it would be very expensive. But um, so the the idea that Jewish people are still waiting for the Messiah, the, yes, the Orthodox are, yeah. but for the rank and file who are not tr truly religious, they are seeking to bring about a messianic age of peace. And to just just between us kids here, I think that has seduced too many believers. Uh, they get on the bandwagon of that the current state of Israel is somehow the Israel that is mentioned in the millennium, that this is the Israel of the kingdom. And this brings up another sticky can of worms. Um, I love the nation of Israel. I love the state of Israel. I have uh, spent uh, many, many months there. I have many friends who were born there, who live there. As much as I love it, as much of a Zionist as I am, I recognize that the current state of Israel, uh, formally re-founded, uh, re-established in 1948, is not the state that is mentioned in the scriptures that talk no. about the millennial kingdom. Um, and that's a sad thing to contemplate, but it contains next to no, none of the, of the factors. No. The fact that you have several points of similarity for instance, there are desert areas that are blooming. Well, when people look at the desert areas in Israel that are blooming, they get all excited. They shunt aside all of the verses about the Messianic kingdom that don't match Israel, about it being a saved nation, about it being a, a godly nation, yeah. a nation given to God. And they look at that one verse about the desert blooming, 
They say, oh, look, it's, it's, it's coming true. My response to that is the stage is being set. Anyone can see that the state, the actors are assembling on the stage and only in the last two generations can we say that. Yes, yes, that's that's so true. The responsibility for us, and, and, and this is part of the reason for this particular podcast, but it's also the, the reason why Know My Faith exists, is our responsibility is to share the Messiah with his own people, with the Jewish people, uh, particularly for those for those of us that that host the uh, Israeli travelers as they come through the nation, to to let them see that their Messiah lives within us, that we worship the God of Israel, and not just to let them go by and go. It's okay, God will fix them in the end. And and I greatly I, I need to say this, um, especially to your your New Zealand audience and perhaps to the folks in Australia as well. It you know God bless the folks who have opened their homes to these Israeli travelers. And my my exhortation to them is extend unconditional friendship. Uh, Don't make your friendship conditional upon their response. First, simply extend unconditional friendship. Make sure everyone knows what the ground rules are uh, regarding the accommodations, but then extend unconditional friendship and let God the Holy Spirit uh, allow them to see. Yeah, amen to that. Model, thank you so much again for your time. Excellent. And uh, thank you for watching. Uh, Remember to subscribe and click the bell and all those sorts of things, and we'll see you next time.